You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Danielle Trussoni, the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Falling Through Earth, selected as one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review. She is also the author of internationally best-selling novels Angelology and Angelopolis, which have been translated into more than 30 languages. She's lived in Japan, England, Bulgaria, and France. She currently lives in New York City, where she joins me to talk about her new book, The Fortress, on sale September 20th from Day Street Books. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you for having me. So Cheryl Strea, the best-selling author of Wild, says, quote, The Fortress is a bold book about the most intimate things. Danielle Drusoni's clear-eyed examination of how she loved and lost her husband is both a page-turner and a profound mediation on the nature of desire and freedom in the modern age. I would have to agree. Thank you. So now the book's subtitle is A Love Story, and it's a love story that begins in October 2001, right? Specifically at a potluck dinner that you were attending during your year at the, or your time at the University of Iowa. And it's the story of meeting the man of your dreams, and he's a visiting a young writer from Bulgaria. Tell us about those early happy days. Uh, well, so as you mentioned, I met my now ex-husband in Iowa City. We were both at the Iowa Writers Workshop. He was a visiting writer. I was an MFA student. And when we met, it was sort of cataclysmic for me. I hadn't met anyone who really made me feel quite like that. We had a lot of things in common. We had, um, you know, we had both traveled a lot. He, he used to be, before we met, he was a Buddhist monk. He was really interested in Buddhism and learning languages. I had lived in Japan and studied Zen. Um, We were both writers. We both had unsuccessful previous relationships, and we both had a child the same age. Everything just seemed magical, and all the pieces of our lives that maybe wouldn't have fit well with other people seemed to fit with each other. So it was this moment where I think a lot of us feel that way, where you meet someone and it's like, oh, wait, you're the person I was waiting to meet Mm -hmm. (laughs) for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it happened, it was just like fireworks going off. And so you stay in Iowa City for a short time, and then his name's Nikolai, correct? That's right. And then his visa runs out. Well, it had already run out, actually, and he needed to renew it. This was a really precarious time for people coming to the States. It was right after September 11th. Homeland Security was implementing all sorts of new laws. And so he was on something called a J-1 visa and had to go, or so he told me, he had to go back to Sofia, Bulgaria to get it renewed and then we could come back to the States. Uh, We had planned to go, I finished uh, my program at Iowa in May. We were going to go from May until September, come back. My son was going to go into preschool and, um, you know, 
it was a summer trip. I don't know that you, I don't remember you going into this in the book. So you, you decide to do this. Do you tell your friends? Do you tell your family? Does anybody say, are you sure? Or is it just presented as, oh, this is a perfectly natural, normal <laughs> thing to do. You're going to go spend some time in your new boyfriend's, with your new boyfriend's family. And that's that. Right. Well, I'll preface this by saying, um, one, I was an unusual person in this regard anyway. I had just come back from living for three years in Japan. Right. Okay. I had spent a lot of time in, in England. England um, and France before, um, you know, so when I said, oh, I'm going to go spend the summer in Bulgaria, no one, the red flags didn't go up. Um, I think what did, you know, for my mom in any case, was a little bit of a warning sign is that I had fallen in love so quickly and was willing to make such a big change so quickly uh, with so Nikolai. did she articulate that? Not well. And even if she had... Your response would have likely well, been probably. You know, I was. This was a point. I was twenty-seven years old. Um, I was in love. Uh, you know, I, I was with someone who had made lots of promises about how much fun it would be in Bulgaria and how I needed to see his country in order to understand him. Which, honestly, I think that that's a valid point. Um, and I just wasn't looking ahead. Also, I didn't know what was waiting for me. I mean, I found out a lot of things changed once I landed in Bulgaria. And if I had all the information, I might not have made that decision. But right now, with those cards being dealt to me, I probably would have made the same decision. It's not such a big commitment to go for a summer. Yeah, exactly. But the summer turns into quite a bit longer, and you end up sort of bedridden while pregnant in <laughs> Bulgaria. Right, that's jumping ahead about, you know, um, eight months, no, six months. But exactly, so we went, we arrived in, in Sofia, the beginning was fine, but very soon I learned that actually the J-1 visa could not be changed in Sofia, and that there was a requirement that the people at the embassy said was a well-known requirement. Um, it, I didn't know this, but that you cannot renew the J-1 visa for two years, and that whoever receives one has to stay in their home country, in this case it was Bulgaria, for two years. So it was an instant, you know, sort of lockdown in that country for Nikolai. Not for me, right? I could have spent my three months and gotten on a plane and returned home, but then a few weeks after that, I found out I was pregnant. And that changed the equation for me considerably because, one, I had just left an MFA program and my health insurance. So mm. I was between wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. between health insurance, one. Two, I had made this grand statement to my family, I'm in love, I'm going to Bulgaria, and going home with my tail between my legs might not have felt great. And third of all, I was in love with this guy, and he asked me to marry him, and it seemed like that was the right thing to do. Well, I didn't realize, you know, I would get sick and end up in a hospital in, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I'd be in, in on bed rest. And so everything just sort of unraveled very quickly. I don't want you to give away too much, so you can always stop me. But tell us what led you to this town in France and this fortress in your title um, right this this these very unusual living situation that you then find yourself in sort of fighting for the marriage right I mean we've we've talked a little bit about Bulgaria and Iowa City but really most of this memoir is set in France and it's really a very French memoir in that um you know fast forward ahead eight years after this scenario that we just described in Sofia our marriage was coming apart 
Um, we had been talking about divorce. I had said I was leaving. He had said, no, please stay. We tried all sorts of things to stay together. And I decided that we should move to France. And the idea stemmed you know, from a number of sources. Part of it was that his family was still in Bulgaria closer. I thought that that would be good for him. Another part of it was that I wanted to learn French and I wanted my children to learn French mm-hmm. and I wanted to have another cultural experience. But the main reason I think that we went was because I believed that if we were together in something, right. if we created a totally different life, yeah. wiped the slate clean, left all the problems that we were having in the States, didn't go back to Sofia where we'd had so many problems already, um, and just started something completely new that none of us, neither of us had assumptions about, that we could create a new life. So we found, um, I did... You did a Google search. I did a Google search. <laughs> yeah, I'll just admit it. I did a Google search. Um, I did have friends I, I, you know, who had moved to France before, and so I'd heard lots about it. But I did, I did a Google search and put in, I think, um, you know, sun, sea, mountains, vineyards, paradise, like this list of, like, you know, all the things that people really want in... And you found it. In a home. And we actually, we found a village that had a house for rent. And in the beginning, we went, you know, rented this house to look around. But very soon after, fell in love with a house that was for sale in the village right at the center called La Commanderie, which was a 13th century fortress. And it was, in French, they called a coup de coeur. And that's, you know, you just fall in love suddenly. And, you know, exactly. And there's a theme in the book, I think, you know, my relationship with my heart is open. Right. My heart was open. I was very ready to I was very ready at that time in my life to um, make my way and to find the right thing that was for me. And, And so when I fell in love with something, I really fell hard. So we bought this house. Um, it was a large, rambling, uh, historic home with lots and lots of previous owners. So, for example, there had been one of the owners was um, a nobleman from the medieval um, period. The Knights Templar had built the the, the oldest part of the of the oh, house. Yeah. Um, there were rumors in the village. So, pe- of course, once you buy a place like that, people start coming out of the woodwork and telling you stories. And I heard stories about how there used to be bullfights in the courtyard. Wow. So they'd have a bull in there and, like, a matador. And, and I don't know, the villagers came and watched. Um, another story about how in the 40s, during the Second World War, the Nazis took over that house and interviewed or interrogated or even held prisoners there. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but um, there were lots of rumors yeah. about about the house. Yeah. I also learned later, after we'd been in there for a, a little while, that the previous owner's wife had died in the house, oh. um, which was yeah. news to me. Uh, but, you know, with a, an old house like that, you never know what you're getting. It just, when I saw it, I felt like this is the right place. And so we bought it. And how much do you want to describe what happens next once once you establish yourself in in this town and in this house and and make this effort to save this marriage well so i'll also say that the village was very small yes so, so everybody we, sort of right. was aware of everybody else's exactly. business exactly yeah. and also it's very isolating mm. i came from you know we were living in the states i had a lot of friends my yeah. family wasn't so far away right. i could get on the train and go places um, of course, everything was in English. I went to a little village in the south of France, not speaking French, 
not, we didn't know a soul. And so it was really stressful (laughs) the first couple of years. I mean, the whole thing was stressful, to be quite frank. But we didn't find our way back to each other the way that I wanted. And I think that the pressures of moving, the pressures of our relationship falling apart, lots, you know, lots and lots of, of little elements led to the, to a sort of instant separation, even more than before. Mm. The house was pretty big. There were two main floors. My ex-husband essentially took the bottom floor. You know, mm-hmm. he, there was a, an office that he was in all the time. I took the bedroom up. The kids and, and I were slept upstairs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would come to bed late at night and go back down to his office. But essentially, we ended up going where we were most comfortable, which was kind of far away from each other. Mm-hmm. And the separation became more pronounced over the course of the four years that we lived in Obey. Now the piece is so well drawn and that we come to the realization that you've got nowhere to go, sort of as you're discovering, you know, as you discover it yourself. And I've also read subsequently where you've written essays where you've said that you you were afraid of failure. You were afraid to say, you know, this isn't working. I, I have to, you know, I have to step away. What was it that allowed you to sort of overcome that concern of what others might think of you and what you what effect this might have on your children and say, no, you know, this is absolutely what I now need to do. And, and as hard as it's going to be, I need to say enough. It's such an interesting question because it's one that I think people come to in an instant, but it takes those, for me, it took those 10 years before that moment to come to that one instant where you can say, actually, it's not worth it anymore. And so just to sort of explain, you know, to sort of describe the environment emotionally that I was in for the for at least the time in Obey and even before that, I came from a family that where my parents were divorced. Yes. It was a really painful situation for me growing up. I had vowed to myself that with this relationship with Nikolai, I wasn't going to let yes. that happen. So yep. it was very much on my mind, you know, throughout our relationship that things might not be working perfectly, but, but I'm going to make yeah, them work. Yeah. I had this sort of like yeah. American idea, like you roll up your sleeves and you can just get in there and make it work. It doesn't matter how. Right. And so I was really very much on that wavelength throughout the relationship I gave up a lot of I, I gave up a lot of myself to stay. Yes. I gave up a lot of what made me me. I started justifying and uh, you know rationalizing my behavior over the course of the relationship. I would say maybe I'm not happy, but you know there are so many women who have less than me. I have yes. two healthy children. Yes. I have a beautiful husband. Um, I've been very lucky with my career. Look, we're in this beautiful house. Why am I unhappy? Mm. Oh, it's me. And I would question myself continually. It didn't help that my um, ex-husband had a way of being that it was you fed yeah. into that that yeah, it was yeah, yeah. my problem and right, that right, right. I was unhappy because of my own stuff, whatever that was. Um, and I chose to believe that for a long time, that it was my fault. And so I would do whatever I could to try to make myself happy, and it just didn't work. At one point, I remember um, saying, okay, I'm just going to discard this whole idea, this happiness thing. I don't even need that. You know, Let's just put that aside. I'm taking, I have two kids that I'm going to just take care of. I'm going to get a lot of work done, and I'll just do that for five or six years until they're older, and then and I'll then leave. We'll see. Yep. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Which is so ridiculous now. I think about you know the state I am in now where I have such a low tolerance for that kind of Interesting. unhappiness. Interesting. But I had to go through that, I think. And so what happened is I ended up, I guess you would say, acting out in different ways. I would go 
I would go to parties and things. My ex-husband would come with me, but he didn't want to go, but I would go. And I would do social, I would put us in social situations that he didn't want to be in. He was very much a recluse, didn't want to be around other people. And I kept doing this and doing this. And one evening I met the Frenchman who opens the book. And we just had a blast together. You know, it was nothing more than that. We were at a party. My ex-husband was there. I was speaking with the Frenchman. Um, He made me laugh. And everyone went dancing. And we danced. And that was it. But this one experience of feeling joy. Reminded you. Yeah. Absolute joy and just lightness. Like something I hadn't experienced for so long cracked something in my heart and I couldn't close that back up again. Yeah, you couldn't ignore it. I couldn't go back to that. So I spent, you know, some weeks after that thinking about it, like, what was that? Mm-hmm. What did I experience? And, and and so I made a decision to go back to Paris to meet him and see if it ha- if I felt that way again. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I did. And so my marriage ended <laughs> soon after. <laughs> and your first very critically acclaimed book was an examination of your father, so a, a sort of another life and your father and your family, but much more so the emphasis on your father. What, how difficult was it to sort of turn the attention to yourself? And, and what kind of, I'm, I'm curious about how you write about yourself in a way that's different the way you would write about a, another subject, however close, as obviously you were very close with your father. Right. That's such a great question because... My first book really is framed, my first memoir, Falling Through the Earth, is really framed around my dad. All of his war stories are in the book. Every scene, almost every scene in the book is a scene with him. Yeah. And I was looking at my relationship with him. Of course, I was writing about my feelings and the right. repercussions of that re- relationship. Right. But it was really about about understanding this man yeah. who had such a profound effect on my life. I also was very aware that it was an important subject, you know, quote unquote, you know, the Vietnam War. My father was a tunnel rat in the Vietnam in the Vietnam War. Part of the book is me going back going to Vietnam and looking at the experience he had from my point of view, juxtaposed with his point of view. This book really is very much about just a female experience. Yeah. This is a woman's story. A woman falling in love, a woman having children, a woman realizing that her dreams and ideas about marriage and love are are wrong, frankly, or um, overblown, or mm. uh, you know they're they're sort of taken from some other um, story and yeah, superimposed like, onto my own. Or it's almost like they're they're sort of immature in the sense of like being led by these popular culture Absolutely. images versus sort of seeing what's really right there. And I, I mean right. I, I mean it in the most generous way of just sort of, of not well, being developed fully yet. And I absolutely agree. You know, I think we all live in that a little bit. Just open yeah. up a magazine, a woman's magazine yeah. every day about the ideal life that we're supposed to right. all be aspiring to. And in reality, who who really wants that yeah. if it's inauthentic? My problem was I think I didn't have the the confidence. I was a very confident person, but I didn't have the feminine confidence Interesting. to realize the difference between uh, that illusion and who I really was under that. Mm-hmm. And so I kept trying yeah. to meet that someplace in them. You know, even if I couldn't have the perfect, I wanted to meet it someplace halfway. Yeah. Uh, and then the moment that I realized that actually that's not important to me was a huge moment. Yeah, I think that that's a common mistake that women make. So what would your wildest dreams be in terms of the reception for this book? Like, what do you want 
this book to do? Oh, <laughs> I haven't even thought really. Not really? Specifically. I mean, you don't and have it, to. I'm just curious because a lot of times you would think, oh, yeah, actually, I know yeah. exactly. I'm hoping that as I write this, that well, this I will know then. That, I know my yeah. ideal reader, actually. Okay, got it. Who's that? You know, when I was writing this book, of course, your question earlier was what was it like to turn the lens on yourself? I was writing it about myself, but I was imagining a younger me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of this. a note to a young, yeah, a or, younger person. Or other sure. women who mm-hmm. who are going through relationship troubles yep. or a job, you know, not feeling good in a job or a bad family relationship or a, or a bad friendship where they're trying and beating their head against the mm. wall, wanting to, to understand how to extricate from that. So I guess my, you know, in my wildest dream Go for ahead. this book with that lots of women would read it. Men too, of course, I think it's great for men too, but I think that this book speaks to the way women live now. Yes. Um, in an extreme version. I mean, this is like, you know, it's an, an extreme version. Not everyone actually, just takes off and goes to France. But, you know, um, you, you change some of the details, though. But, the, you know, they, you can drop in. I think every one of us who reads it has either done it themselves or has a good friend who you change three or four of the details, and it's a very similar story. And that's one of the reasons why I ask, because I think it's remarkably common that even very bright, very accomplished women are susceptible to the fairy tale, frankly, and to the the I am stronger than this. I will will this to hold. Absolutely, um, I think that this is one of the great myths of being a, a woman in our moment. Is that we can be, we can have the fairy tale, we can have the the power to do to change our lives the way that we want. We're all inundated with books and yeah. and stories um, about that subject. And at the same time, we're not really given the tools to find out if that's the story we actually want. A lot of women that I know, a lot of dear friends of mine don't have children. Mm-hmm. And they don't, it, it's, a, it's a question for them. I mean, this is a totally different story right, than my similar, story, yeah. but it's a similar thing. Mm-hmm. They're given this image that to be a, a, you know, you should be a working mom or you should be... right. Who's to say (laughs) that that's necessary? And I think it's important for people to just break through these sorts of um, stereotypical, aspirational versions of femininity and just be happy. Right. I mean, the bottom line is like, just do what you have to do to be happy because we have one life, right? It's not worth the pain. I think it's interesting what you said earlier, which is now your your tolerance – for sort of gutting it out has diminished almost to nothing. Which is crazy because I grew up in an environment with my father where it was, I was a tomboy. It was very much about will and perseverance and, you know, just muscling through and being strong. Right. And I came to realize through this 10 year experience of being stronger than I've ever been in my life that sometimes being weak has an upside saying, actually, this doesn't feel good. It just doesn't feel right, and I'm just going to walk away. Yeah, and I think that that's something that could save people a lot of time and heartache mm-hmm. to just look at a situation clearly and say, you know what? I know I could muscle through this, but I don't think it's good for me. Yeah, it's not beneficial. So tell me a little bit about the the writing process. Who who was your first reader when you went when you have pages that you want a response? Oh, that's so interesting because. During my marriage, it was my ex-husband. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I lost that. Oh, that had to have been huge. 
Yeah, that was huge. And that's one point of synergy that we had um, where we were close and it was hard to break it because there was an artistic element. Mm-hmm. Right now, I give. I have a friend who does some reading for me. I have my agent, Eric uh, Simonoff, who reads the first draft of everything and is so supportive and, and wonderful. My current partner, the Frenchman, the from Frenchman. The book. I'll just I wa- give I it away. To ask, but I didn't. I didn't want to. Sorry. Wanna. <laughs> yeah. So we're still together. It's interesting because he's French, so English is not as clearly his native language. So when he reads something of mine, he's not reading for like prose style. Yeah. He really gives me a different perspective. Uh, yeah, yeah, so sometimes he'll read what I write. But basically, I have a professional network of people. Who okay. I don't have. You know, when I was at Iowa at the Iowa Writers Workshop, of course, you have people who read your work and you get used to that. I don't really have that group anymore yeah which is maybe something I miss but I do have really great readers and you successfully go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction because you just you like sort of flexing both of those muscles well I'll tell you the first my first memoir I actually wrote as a novel first interesting and then what, um, what changed what changed it it didn't sell oh so you submitted it it, it came I back had an from agent. everybody and then you said okay you know what the and heck with it I still want to tell the story I'm going to sit down and write it as well what I realized is that it was I was telling the story the wrong way Interesting. I had it, there was you know my two novels are somewhat fantastical speculative yeah. fiction, and the book about Vietnam had a father and it had a daughter, but it was kind of dreamy and kind of not real feeling. And and from all the notes I got back from editors, twenty five rejections by awesome. the way uh, after spending four years writing this novel. That was uh, really fun. I'm glad we got to that. I think yeah, so I know. Like I remember getting the last of the twenty five and going, oh god, what am I gonna do? Um, but I went back and I just said, I took all these notes and I, I sort of had this moment where I'm like, you know, why am I writing this story? I'm writing this story because I want to talk really about the relationship between me and my dad. Why don't I just really write it? So I sat down and wrote 50 pages of a proposal and that sold it like right How away. interesting. It was and totally it, new. I didn't use any of the material from the novel, it, of course, but... but- it was a process. And it becomes one of the New York Times top 10 books of the year. That's, that's wonderful. That's it a felt wonderful story. after all the rejections. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll glide right over that. <laughs> all the years of obscurity. I know. Now, uh, what are you working on now, fiction or nonfiction? I'm working on a novel. All right. But it's at the very beginning stages still. So I'm developing exactly what that's about. Another question that I ask everyone is, what was the last book you had a conversation about? And what did you say? Oh, dear. What was the last book I had a conversation about? I have conversations about... So I'm reading... My son, um, Alex, and I are reading Moby Dick together. Together. I mean, this is our summer assignment. So, so you're reading it aloud to him? No, he's reading it. He's you, 16 you go back and forth, now. So, yeah. so he's reading. It's hard for him. Yeah. But he's, yeah, bright. he's a bright kid. And we're reading Nathaniel Philbrick's Why Read Moby Dick, like this oh, guide. Perfect. perfect. And we're, we're doing all, you know, this back and forth about it. So that's the last book. I haven't finished that with him. We're in the middle of doing that right now. But every year we try to do a book together. Last, year, last summer we did Grapes of Wrath. Did you have to pay him? I don't have to pay him, but you know, I do during the year. This summer thing, no, but during the year, I give him $20 a book. Susan Cheever. <laughs> I got that from Susan Cheever, from her memoir, where she said, the heck with it. I, I'm paying him to read, and I'm fine with it. And ever since I read that, I do, I've done the same thing. They love it. And then they also, it's also like having a like a little part-time job, right? Exactly. I mean, exactly. $20, you know, that's not... Such she paid. Him. I think I'm going to have to go back to it. I can't. Even, I can see the cover. I can't remember the, the title of the book, but I think at that time she only paid him a dollar. Well, I'm getting him to read kind of 
big books. Okay, so you know, all right. And there's you know, actually we have a fifteen dollar book, and we have and audiobooks count. Just so you thank know. you very much. Oh my god, this reminds me because as, as your audio publisher, tell us about recording and whether or not you liked it, and whether or not you think it'll influence the way you approach writing. I loved it. I was shocked. I, I thought I, I was really freaked out by the idea of doing it Good. at first. Good. And I, you know, read my book a bunch of times to myself and tried to read it out loud and recorded myself. Did, I did you really? I, and yeah, it's very. But then diligent. I sat down and I started, and it really felt good. I also think that I will always, always request to do the audiobook yeah. again because I found as I was reading, that certain things didn't sound right, that there were phrases I would change. It really was like an almost like another editing process. Yeah. Did you have time, though, at I that did. point? I did. You did? So I could make up just it? a few. And I found some factual errors, <laughs> very important, um, which we obviously changed before I read. So it, it was great. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much. Danielle Trusoni, author of The Fortress, which is on sale September 20th, and it's available wherever print books, e-books, and audiobooks are sold. Thank you so very much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It was great. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.